0: And we'll pick up our reading today in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We've been talking about living hope. That's where we've been since the first of the year. And Peter sent this letter to Persecuted Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. These opening 12 verses have been nothing but encouragement, both to them and to us. He's given no commands. Can you go 12 verses in any New Testament book and have no commands? He's just reminding them of who they are in God. Who God has made them in Christ. He's been writing words of encouragement, not only of who they are in God, but also the benefits that they have received and will receive in the living hope that He has given them. Just in the second verse, he told them that they had been chosen by God. They were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Though the world is rejecting them, though they are hated by people around them, they can find comfort and encouragement in knowing that they have been chosen by God Almighty. Not only that, but he has showed us abundant mercy. He has caused us to be born again. When we were dead in our sins, through Jesus who died for us and rose from the dead, He has given us new life. He has promised that at the end of this life we have an inheritance. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it will not fade away. It is secure, it is kept in heaven for you. And not only is your inheritance kept, not only is your inheritance secure, but you are secure. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are following Him, you are guaranteed to receive that inheritance. That is an encouragement. And last week when we looked at verses 10 through 12, we we thought about how that maybe these guys were were concerned about their situation and they might like to trade places with others through history. And we have that tendency, don't we, that we, we think that other people have it better than us. Maybe they thought, well, maybe we could switch places. Wouldn't it be nice if we could switch places with the prophets? They heard directly from God. But Peter reminds them, no, they wish they could switch places with you. Because you have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what about angels? Maybe we, if we switched places with them, we would be better off. But Peter says, no, these things are things that angels wish they could look into so through these words of encouragement, surely we have been built up. We have been encouraged. We can hear these great things and we can come to church and say, Amen, praise God, and go home. Now what? Now what? What do we do with what we believe? So Peter uses this really important word. Therefore, therefore is the hinge in this chapter that helps us walk through the door that leads us from what is true to our response to that truth. The main verb in verse 13, the imperative that is given is right in the middle of the verse, he says this, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do you do with what Peter has said? What do you do with these words of encouragement? And the command is this, rest your hope fully on it. That's so simple, isn't it? God has shown His grace to you. He has chosen you. He has promised to carry you through everything you face in this life. He has promised to bring you safely home at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you do? You just rest in it. You rest your hope fully on that promise. Simply believe what God has said. How were you saved? How did you become a Christian in the first place? By faith. You believed what God had said in His Word about our Lord Jesus in the Gospel. How do you carry on in the Christian life now that you're a believer? By faith. Believing what God has said. But is that it? Is that where it stops? Do we hear the words of God, affirm that we believe it, and move on? Let me say emphatically, no. No. See, there are some realities, there are some truths that are so significant, so weighty, that they alter the very way we live our lives. And I don't know anything more significant, I don't know anything that carries more weight, more life-altering than the reality that God has made us to be His children and that He has promised these things to us in Jesus Christ. if we have truly experienced this living hope, the grace and the regenerating work of God in us in salvation, the promise of what lies ahead when this life is over, the guarantee that He's with us all the way, if we have truly experienced that, it will change the way you live. It will impact your decisions, your plans, and your attitudes. In short, hope leads to holiness. Hope leads to holiness. What kind of changes characterize the person who is resting their hope on God's promises? What kind of life does this hope produce in Christians? I'll give you four things. We'll spend more time on two than the other two. Number one... We prepare our minds for action. We prepare our minds for action. He said in verse 13, and I'm reading from the New King James, he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now that's not something we're really familiar with, because we're so far removed from this day in this society. But the men in this day, and of course you know this because you've seen uh, even people today in that part of the world still dress this way, wear the the long flowing uh, shirts and robes that go all the way down to their feet. And to gird up the loins meant to gather up the ends, the loose ends of that robe or that shirt, and pull them up, pull them together between their leg, and then tuck it into a belt and tighten up the belt. And why would you do that? Well, it's pretty hard to run with... Long flowing robes and shirts around your ankles and knees, right? At the first Passover meal, in Exodus chapter 12, when God gave the commands of what they were to do with that lamb, they were to kill it, put the blood around the door, and then prepare the meal. And He said, when you eat it, do it with a belt on your waist. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Now, why would He mention that? Why should they eat this meal with their loins girded? With their belt tightened? Because they needed to be ready to leave in a hurry. God was bringing deliverance and they needed to be able to get up and move. To be ready for action. Soldiers needed to do the same thing. When Paul listed the Christian's armor, the first thing he said was, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. You can't run into battle with clothing loose around your legs and your feet. Gird your loins. Prepare for action. Be ready for battle. Peter specifically says this though. Gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, there are some pretty common errors when we think about the place of the mind in spirituality, in Christianity, and there's a ditch on, the both, on both sides of the road. One error is this, is that Christianity is purely intellectual, it's academic. It's knowing the right things, understanding right doctrine, articulating theological positions with precision. Simply knowing who Jesus is and what He did, and that's all you need. You've got to know the right stuff. Let me be clear about this. A mere intellectual understanding of God and the Bible has absolutely no power to save you. Intellectual assent cannot make you right with God. Unless this gospel that you can grasp with your mind grips your heart, you are not a Christian. If all you know is in your head, and in your head alone, you are dead in your sins. You'll die and go to hell with full knowledge about what God has said. But the other error is just as dangerous. And that is that the mind doesn't matter. It's all about the heart. Doctrine doesn't matter. The details don't matter. So long as you believe in God and feel something in your heart, you're good. Don't worry about all that that messy theology business. That's just something to argue over. That's just as wrong. Unfortunately, this is where much of supposed Christianity is today. We're going for the feel-good, positive, and encouraging, mindless spirituality. And just as the intellectuals will die in their sins for not putting their trust in God, in the God that they know all these things about, many others will die in their sins because they never had a clear view of who God is at all. What's the way to a man's heart? Somebody whispered stomach. I knew you you would. (laughs) Truly, the way to a man's heart, and a woman's heart for that matter, is through the mind. It's through your mind. You can't believe in a God that you don't know. Your faith must be an informed faith. Something is informing what you believe. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And to us as Christians, Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. He told the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to live a holy life? You want to live like a Christian who is resting in the living hope that God has provided for us in Christ? Then gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your minds for action, feed your mind. With what will feed your soul. What you put in your mind makes its way to your heart. Feed your mind with what will feed your soul. And number two, we exercise self-control. He just makes this in comment in passing, we won't spend much time on it, but he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Be sober. Some translations say, be sober in spirit. In this instance, I don't think he's addressing the excessive use of alcohol. That's what we tend to think about. The Bible has plenty to say about that, but I don't think it's what he's saying here. But the point is similar. Whereas drunkenness does what? It impairs the mind, it deadens the senses. Intoxication with the world's attractions will do the same thing. As Christians, we must live with clarity of mind, with self control, not in a, a fit of anger when just the right thing gets, says, gets said on the news, not enticed and disillusioned by the pursuit of wealth. Not distracted by the promises of fulfillment in anything that the world offers. As we prepare our minds for action, we must also be characterized by clarity. We must be people who exercise self-control. Number three, we live in obedience to God. This seems like an obvious one, doesn't it? So simple, yet we need to be reminded. He said in verse 14, as obedient children. There's nothing worse than a disobedient child, right? I live with a couple. (laughs) I'm just kidding. They're good 85% of the time. We're called to live as obedient children. Jesus said in John 14, he said, if you love me, what? You will Keep my commandments. John repeated the same idea in 1 John 5. He said, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. I think David's favorite verse to quote is from Luke 6, maybe. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? Christians... This, listen, this is, this is hard stuff, okay? Christians are characterized by obedience and conformity to Christ. Christians should look like and listen to Christ. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus if you're not, I don't know, following Jesus? Jesus. I can tell you that I'm a professional football player, but I haven't touched a football in five years, at least, or more. You know that I'm telling you a lie. It's not true because I, I, I couldn't do it. I'd be too embarrassed to try in front of you guys. We live in obedience to God. Then the fourth thing, and we'll spend a little bit more time on this one, we forsake our old ways. We forsake our old ways. He said in verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. You don't do that anymore because you know better. You didn't know better then. You were in your ignorance. When we become Christians, we are made what? New creations. We are new creatures in Christ. Therefore, the lusts by which we were characterized are now called what? Former lusts. They are things which no longer characterize us. doesn't mean that Christians never sin again. I wish. One day we won't. But we are not marked by those things by which we were once marked. The language that Peter uses here in in verse 14 is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He describes what we were like before we were born again. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air. The Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We are to be children of obedience, whereas we were sons of disobedience. He says, "...among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." That was our former condition. That's what we were before we knew Christ. We went after our lusts before we were Christians. We were like the rest of the world before we were Christians. We were children of wrath before we were Christians. Why would we ever go back to those things? We've been made new. We're no longer children of wrath. We no longer live after the lusts of our flesh. He's perfectly clear about this in 1 Corinthians. He said, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such Were some of you, he says. And such were some of you, but not anymore. Why? You are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who we were before. We've been made new. We've been washed. We've been made clean. We are new creations. We who have rested our hope fully on Christ are changed people. We are. We sin, yes, but the pattern of our lives is in a different direction altogether than what it was before we were converted. There is a change. If there is no change in you, you really have no reason to be assured of your salvation. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you have just fallen into sin and you need to repent. But you have no reason for assurance. You have no reason to call yourself a follower of Jesus if you are not following Jesus. Christ came to rescue us from our sin and to make us holy. Many of you can give testimony to how he's done that in your life. You think back to what you were before you knew Christ. Christ. And that moment of conversion for you is clear. And you can see that progression of change. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you look back and it is encouraging to see how far you've come. Peter's calling these Christians to holiness. Surely, in their situation, it would be tempting to go back to their old ways. When the pressure's on, it seems really enticing. To go back to the world. When persecution comes, when trials come, you will be tempted. Remember the parable of the soils. Some of the seed fell on stony ground. It shot up, it looked like it was doing great, but there was no root, there was no depth. And the sun came out and it withered up and died. Some of the seed fell among thorns, and and again, it shot up. It looked good. It looked like things were going well. But the thorns choked it. And Jesus said that's like the one who believes maybe for a little while, but then the cares of this life, the allure of riches, strangles out the faith that may have been there. Peter's calling these Christians to holiness, and he's calling us to holiness. If we fully grasp the hope that has been given to us in Jesus, it will make a change in us. We will be made holy. Let me say a couple of things about holiness. From Look at just verse 15 and 16. He says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. See, everybody has a moral standard that they live by. What is morally acceptable in our minds is usually shaped by what is culturally acceptable or normal in society as a whole. As society changes, often so does the view of morality in the minds of the people. The moral standard is whatever's is acceptable. If it's popular, if most people are either okay with doing it or doing it themselves, then it's morally acceptable. It's okay. That's how it usually goes. But not so with the Christian. The standard of holiness is not what is morally acceptable to the culture. The standard of holiness, the standard by which Christians are called to live, is the standard of the Holy One Himself. He said, as He who called you is holy. And when we think about that that word called, or we think about calling, most people just think about the preachers. That guy's got some calling on his life to stand up front and tell us what the Bible says. Or we think about the missionary, he's been called to go and share the gospel across the world. But let me tell you this, each one of you who have been born again have been called by God. If you were not called, you would not have been saved. And just as the one who called you to salvation is holy, so you are to be Holy. Be holy, for He is holy. God is the standard of holiness. What what matters isn't what's acceptable to the world, but what is required by God and His Word. See, you can go pull statistics on stuff like this. What people are okay with. Most people in the world figure it's okay to look at pornography. Do we adjust our standard to fit what is morally acceptable with the world? Absolutely not. Because God has said whoever looks even with lust in his heart has committed adultery. Most of the world says it's okay to try it out and move in with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you get married. But God is clear about the appropriate place for sex in a relationship, and that's only in the covenant of marriage. Much of the world, an increasing number of people in the world, say it's okay to eliminate a child before it is born. To kill it. But God is clear. That each person is made in the image of God. He is the author of life and he is the one who decides when it's our time to die. It doesn't matter what the world accepts. What matters is what God requires. We could go on with many more examples. Not only is God the standard of our holiness, He is the source of our holiness. See, none of us can meet God's holy standard, can we? It's, it's a bit intimidating to think that God calls us to be holy as He is holy. I can't do that. He's the standard, and his standard is perfection, and I know I'm not perfect. In fact, I'll just be honest with you I'm flat out rotten. I'm filthy. Paul told the Romans that all have sinned. How many? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've missed the mark, we don't measure up to his holiness. And for sinners, the thought that we will stand before this holy God as our judge one day is terrifying. Because if He executes justice, we're doomed. But just as He calls us to holiness, He provides it for us. Because Jesus didn't die for us when we were good, right? Jesus didn't die for us while we were righteous. But Romans says that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was holy and perfect and sinless in your behalf. And he took the punishment for your unholiness, your sin. On himself when he died on the cross. And when you repent of your sin and put your trust in him alone. He grants you his holiness. His righteousness. There's a sense in which each of you who have put your trust in Christ right now are holy. You are righteous in the sight of God. But that's still being worked out very practically in our lives, isn't it? We're still on a path. If we desire to progress in holiness in this life, then we must live near to the one who is perfect and holy. James said, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Prepare your mind for action. Be sober, self-controlled, be obedient, and forsake the former lusts as we rest in the grace that shall be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we pray? Father, You have been kind to us. You've given us Your Word. You've assured us of our standing with You. These promises, this living hope. And our response to that, Lord, ought to lead us to holiness. God, there's no way I could point out And bring to mind every sin of every person in this room, not even my own, Lord. But I pray that you would bring to our minds those things of which we need to repent. That we would draw nigh to you, our source of holiness. God, if someone here doesn't know you, if they are living in their sins, they're still living in those former lusts. Peter wrote about. Bring them to a place of repentance that they may trust in Christ. Be glorified in each of us. In Jesus' name.